Well, this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And uh, originally I was thinking, oh yes, it's great after a difficult series like the book of Revelation, we'll go to some easy stuff about Moses and all the rest of it, having forgotten that we're actually into the second half uh, of the book of Exodus. And so, every word of scripture is God-breathed, every scripture uh, is there to help us, is useful. So we're digging into the second half, we've done the Ten Commandments, and now we're going into more specific laws. And really the thing that makes this section unique as we go through the the laws that we're going to see over the coming weeks is that this one, more than the others, deals with laws about slavery and slaves. Slavery and the slave trade, as we've seen over the past few years, is still a very live issue. It was only a couple of years ago that statues of slave traders uh, were being torn down across the world. Uh, Hopefully here's one of... uh, No, okay... Um, there's, uh, if you remember, the, the statue of Edward Coulson in Bristol uh, was thrown down into the river uh, after being torn down. Currently, the state of California in America is looking at legislation to financially compensate the descendants of slaves for their ancestors' kidnapping and mistreatment. And make no mistake, those things did happen, didn't they? Uh, there was the case that Africans were taken from their home against their wills, transported to the coasts, sailed away across the Atlantic in conditions that nowadays you wouldn't allow cattle to travel in. They were betrayed by their kinsmen, who were often their kidnappers. They were mistreated by their masters, who were often abusive. And for us, because that was so big in our history, for us it's hard when we think about slavery not to think of just that period in history, that abhorrent stain on history that was the transatlantic slave trade. And although it's true that as a nation we were instrumental in stopping it, we also took part in it for a long time. Christians took part in it, uh, even if they, uh, if there were Christians like Wilberforce and John Newton who led the campaign to stop it, Christians were also involved in it as well. But I want you to see before we start that even before we get into the developments in the New Testament, there's enough in our passage to show you that the slave trade was illegal even under Old Testament law. If you have a look at verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Kidnapping someone and selling them was a crime punishable under Old Testament law by death. Possessing a slave who had been kidnapped was a crime punishable by death. The principle here, if it needed spelling out really, is that you can't kidnap someone and sell them. Of course, it did need spelling out, because actually their ancestors, the ancestors of the Israelites, had done just that. For those of us who go to Wednesday at 2, we've been looking at the kidnapping of Joseph and his brothers selling him into slavery. The question, though, really is, even if we write off all the slave trade, we need to address the issue of why slavery is here at all. Surely, if God was setting up a society, he'd make one where slavery did not exist. Especially if you think about the context, this is a society that had just been brought out of slavery in Egypt. And it's a challenging argument. I've faced it from non-Christians who've come up with this sort of argument. So I want to say two things before we dig into the text itself. Number one is that the law in the Bible codifies and regulates even things that God dislikes or abhors. We're going to see in our section rules and regulations for brawls and fights. God doesn't want people to fight, but he's going to regulate how they do that. 
The law also regulates divorce, even though we're told elsewhere that God hates divorce. We're told in the New Testament that these things happen in the law because God recognises that our hearts are hard. That's how Jesus puts it in Matthew 19. God recognises that we actually don't behave as we should do. And you could say the same about slavery. There are rules here because inevitably it happens at points in history. The reason is because human beings are fallen and hard-hearted. So rules here are in place to protect these people who find themselves for one reason or another in slavery. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is we've got to let the passage speak for itself. The slavery that we find here is very different from the slavery of Africans in America or the slavery of non-Muslims in the Arab world or even the slavery in the Roman Empire that we see in the New Testament. We must let the passage speak and tell us what this looks like before we start jumping to conclusions. Having said that, this is going to be a tricky talk, especially since this one passage doesn't give us the whole picture. There are several passages in the law which teach about slaves. I'll refer to some of them as we go through, but bear in mind, we're not, this is not a topical talk on slaves. We're looking at chapter 21 of Exodus. It doesn't give us the full picture, as many laws after the Ten Commandments do. It doesn't spell out principles, but often gives you scenarios that you've got to work out the principles behind. So we're going to have a bit of work to do to understand the spirit of the laws being given, the principles behind them. But bearing that all in mind, let's dig in. First of all, we find the first thing we find out is how to set slaves free. That's the first thing we get mentioned about slaves. Let me read to you verses 1 to 6 again. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he, go, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. That his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore in his ear, ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. The first mention we get in the law about slaves actually tells you how they are to be set free. Slavery in Israel, if you see it there, was only to last six years. Now I should note that this is it's unclear exactly the situation with foreign slaves, but that's for another time, another passage. This is how it's presented here. On the seventh year, slaves were to be freed without paying any ransom price, any release price. In fact, you find out elsewhere the master would have to give them something on leaving. So Deuteronomy 15. And when you let uh, him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So it wasn't even they had to pay you something, you had to give them something when they left. Also, after 49 years, every 49 years in Israel, there would be a year of jubilee. And all slaves, regardless of how long they'd served, would be set free that year. All debts would be cancelled, all land would be returned to its original owner. So if you became a slave one year before the year of jubilee, you'd only have to serve one year and then you'd be set free. We also see that becoming a slave wouldn't take away your wife, as it does in other forms of slavery through history. 
If you were single when you became a slave, you would leave single. Unless you were married by your master to another slave, in which case you could choose whether to remain in that marriage or not. You could choose to remain with your master and your wife, and that was up to the slave to decide. They could choose what they wanted to do. If they decided to stay, they'd go through a ceremony where your ear would be pierced as a sign of your promise of lifelong obedience to your master. I used to remember this being quoted to me as a teenager of reasons not to get your ear pierced. I never really needed any, really. But uh, it's a mark there of lifelong slavery. Now, you know, obviously we take it a different way, but that was the ceremony they would go through. The ear really was a symbol of obedience because you would listen to your master. So the idea of it, your ear belonged to him. So you could choose to go out with, uh, the, uh, or choose to uh, stay with the wife that you've been given. There's a separate section for female slaves in 7 to 11. There are protections here for female slaves. It's probably younger ones in mind. That's why it's daughters being given in slavery. Well, I looked at the Greek translation this week, and the word there is just girl given rather than slave. So there are two scenarios given in 7 to 11. In one scenario, he's bought himself a bride. Now, you might think that's disgusting. I would share that opinion. But do you know that still happens? You can find plenty of websites on the internet, Thai Brides, I don't know if these are real websites, ThaiBrides.com, you know, RussianBrides.com, where essentially there are women for sale. This isn't saying that this is right, but it's regulating something that happens, and it still happens, and it risks damaging people. Even with all our checks and balances today, it's still hard to stop a scenario where someone offers money to marry somebody else. If they offer them money, what what could we do to sort of stop that from happening? What the man can't do here is buy a girl as a bride and then not marry her. If that happens, if he decides not to marry her, then he has to offer her up for redemption, for her being bought back. If he decides he doesn't want to marry her, he can't force her to stay as a slave. He equally can't sell her on to somebody else as some sort of awful chain. He is the one at fault here, and he needs to sort it out. So actually, they, they're to be given the chance for freedom. The other scenario seems to be a father that has essentially bought his son a bride. Uh, we're told here that uh, when she is married to the son, then actually she's to be treated as if he were his own daughter. She's to be provided for. And even if the son or he takes another wife, she's to be looked after equal to the other wives. And if she's not treated that way, then she's to go free. She must be kept in a manner to which she's accustomed to, with food, clothing and sex, (coughs) providing her with children who will care for her in her old age. She's to be looked after as though she were part of the family. Now as you read this, you can't help but think of the patriarchs in Genesis again, can you? And what went wrong when both Abraham mistreated Hagar, who was given to him, Uh, as a wife, and when Jacob took two wives, and then also had their maidservants as wives. This is the kind of scenario it's talking about. Abraham should not have allowed Sarah, his wife, to mistreat Hagar, his maidservant, because she's part of the family. Jacob should, should have treated his family with equal regard. He should have treated his wives fairly and equally. Those things remind us that this is a very different world, isn't it? Those things were more common in that part of the world at this time. 
Most of the people God were addressing here were the children of exactly that kind of situation. They'd seen what happens when these things go wrong. They were children of mistreated wives and maidservants, female slaves. And it's interesting, though, that Scripture does call these women wives. So, for example, there, Genesis 30, verse 4, she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. They were to be treated as wives of husbands, daughters of fathers. So although slavery is awful, actually there were lots of protections in place. This is not quite the slavery that we're used to. It's not necessarily pleasant, but it's not the norm for slavery historically. In fact, there's more more to show actually later on that slaves in Israel were to be treated quite well. Before we come to that, though, our passage also deals with other areas around this idea of taking lives and having someone's life in your hands. So, second point, have you been injured and it wasn't your fault? (laughs) Verses 12 to 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies will be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another man to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Um, I'll come to that in a second. The law here, up to verse 14, basically sets up the difference between premeditated murder and manslaughter. There's a difference between a heat-of-the-moment murder and a premeditated one where you've thought it through. Those who are guilty of manslaughter would be given a place to flee from the family of the victim. In those days, the family would administer the justice. These places eventually would be called cities of refuge. There would be several set up through the land so you could get to one close to you. And the city of refuge would judge whether the person had a sufficient case for receiving protection. The Levites took those places and they would be experts in the law. They would know what was happening. Some people think that before those cities were set up, the altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle was in mind. Hence, verse 14, to be removed from the altar would be to be sentenced to death, as though you'd gone to the altar for sanctuary. If they were guilty, though, the death penalty would be invoked. There was no concept of lifelong imprisonment in the law. Prison, if you need it in the Bible, is normally the place where you go to await trial. It's not punishment in itself, it's sort of waiting to be heard. Now, some take this as a directive uh, for the death penalty for murder, even in modern societies. And I don't think it's a directive as such, but I do think the law shows us that it's permissible. We need to take the deliberate uh, taking of human life seriously, whatever form that takes in our society. Personally, I don't support the death penalty, but I think laws like this should keep us from judging others if they do. Even in the New Testament, we're told that the state bears the sword, which is an instrument of death, not just of correction. And verses 15 and 17 give us two other offences that carry the death penalty. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. And then verse 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Whilst many want uh, the death penalty for murder, not so many clamour for the death penalty for these offences. That word strike there is used throughout the chapter, uh, the idea of striking your parents. It seems to refer to a strong blow that could have been enough to uh, to lead to death. 
It's an attack, it's a beating. It's more than just what a toddler or a child might do in a tantrum. It's not suggesting they would be subject to the death penalty. Verse 17 is the verbal equivalent, a spoken attack on their parents. It's stronger than just a misspoken word, as though, you know, again, teenage angst sort of against parents. I've got that to look forward to, I guess. But uh, it's stronger than just those words spoken in, in, in haste. Balaam, for example, in the Old Testament, is hired to curse the Israelites with the implication that it would cause them harm. Elijah curses the youths who mock him for his hair and bears come out and attack them against something quite strong. Jesus also brings this out in the New Testament, though here it's to a fellow Christian, so Matthew 5, uh, 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So what it's talking about here is an attack aimed on your parents, either physically or verbally, and that was punishable by death. It's sort of the opposite of what you read, isn't it, in the Ten Commandments, you honour your father and mother, this is doing the very opposite. Then we commented that part of that was God revealing himself as father, that's why we're to honour our father and mother. An attack here on our parents is in a sense an attack on God in that sense. They're their God-given authority. That doesn't mean they get carte blanche to treat uh, their children however they like. Again, more of this in the Bible. But it does mean that we shouldn't be out to destroy our parents. That's the principle I think we can take from that. The next few verses deal with brawls and fights. Have a look at 18 and 19. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time, and shall have him thoroughly healed. Again, think about it. It's not saying that these things are good, this situation, but it's seeking to mitigate some of the bad effects that might come from it. The law could just say, could it, don't fight. That would be sensible, wouldn't it, you think? But instead, it deals with people how they are, as they are. If there is a fight and someone is injured and cannot work for a while, this is what you do. It's taking it that this is going to happen. And what it's saying is, in that scenario, if there's no permanent harm done, the person gets up and can walk, then what's needed is compensation for the time that they needed to take off work. Not quite the compensation you get with the, you know, have you been injured, etc. But they were to give them something to, to compensate them for a lost time. There was no sick pay in those days, so the one who caused the injury is liable, not an insurance company or the government. The next scenario is more complicated and controversial. Have a look at verses 22 to 25. It's quite similar, but it's different. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. Here is a pregnant woman caught in a fight between two other people. She's hit during the fight so that she gives birth prematurely. If there's no permanent harm, then the man is simply to be fined. If there is harm, though, he'll be liable. 
and in comes in the first mention of life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. But the big question here is harm to whom? Is it to the baby or is it to the mother? Now there are some who say it's just the mother. And I've heard this use, uh, this verse used to argue that the Bible treats unborn children as less than human. So, in other words, we can just do that as a society as well. The death here seems only to be subject to a fine. What they argue is that the fight has resulted in a miscarriage, and then the harm is, that's mentioned is only done to the mother. Several translations go with miscarriage as a translation. Disturbingly, they're the ones most popular with children and young people. So the Good News Bible, the contemporary English version, which is used in youth Bibles, the message version. But the word is literally go out, go forth, leave. They come out of her. It's a common, normal word used in the Bible 1,489 times for just leave, depart. It's the word used for normal birth elsewhere. So Esau came out red. Jacob came out holding his uh, brother's heel, same word. It doesn't imply death or miscarriage per se, it just means come out. And in fact, we'll see in a few weeks' time, there's a normal Hebrew word to miscarry, and it's used in chapter 24. Well, if that's what it means, then why not use it here? So, no harm here. Must, uh, is it to the child or the mother? Well, it would seem to be the child. Otherwise, why have a pregnant woman at all? Apart from the fact that the fine would apply to anyone caught in a fight, wouldn't it? Why have the first mention of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, for specifically a pregnant woman? It's much more likely that the child, harm to the child, is in mind. In which case, if the child dies due to the injury caused to the mother, then the man is liable not just for a fine, but to the death penalty. And if the child is injured, the same is done to him. It's that sort of simple justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's worth mentioning at this point, though, that whilst this was their, their legal system, their right, their justice, Jesus encourages us to show grace in the midst of all that. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. That's not Jesus contradicting what we see here. What Jesus is saying is that although under the law you might have the right to this kind of justice, you can choose to lay down that right. You can choose to forgive and show kindness rather than pursue justice. And I think it's important when we think that through on issues surrounding the unborn. Now, I believe what's happening with our nation's unborn is a tragedy of epic proportions. But that doesn't mean that we should be pursuing mothers and fathers who have made that choice. Most of them are unaware of what they are doing, being sold the idea that what is within them is not quite alive or human. What we should be doing is sensitively but firmly helping society as a whole see the truth, that human life is important, that it's special, that we are made in God's image. We do not have the right to take it away. That is one of the principles that we see in the law, and that includes to the unborn. 
Finally, though, our passage returns to the issue of slavery. So let's uh, finish with how to treat a slave. Let me read to you 20 and 21, which deals with some of these issues, but from a slavery perspective. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Masters were not allowed to treat slaves however they liked. If a master killed a slave, then the family was allowed to seek justice, to avenge at what had happened. In those days, the family would go after that person. They would be allowed to take the life of the master because he had taken the life of their family member. More of this as we go through Exodus. Verse 21 is a bit more tricky. You can either translate it like the ESV does, which seems to suggest that the slave dies after a couple of days. Or like the NIV, which suggests that the slave recovers after a couple of days. So the NIV says, puts it this, puts it this way. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two. If we go with the NIV, it's fairly easy to see the scenario. You can't kill a master for beating up his slave. Don't go administering justice before you know the outcome of what's happened. That would also mean it's parallel to the verses before. If we go with the ESV's understanding, then the scenario in mind is either that the master didn't intend to kill him, in which case it was manslaughter rather than premeditated murder, or where a slave was struck and then died several days later. It could be other causes unrelated to being struck that accidentally uh, killed him. So, you know, it could be, you know, you struck my father on Monday and then he died of a heart attack on Wednesday. It's your fault that he's dead. I'm taking your life. That could be the line that's being... Uh, gone down, you can't do that, says the law. Either way, we see that it's not in the master's interest to be taking his slave's life. Why risk your own neck? And why damage your own property, so to speak? In fact, the verses that follow make that scenario incredibly unlikely anyway. Have a look at verses 26 to 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, He shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. If a master knocked out the tooth of a slave, he'd have to let him go free. If he damaged the eye of a slave so that he couldn't see out of it, he'd have to let him go free. Now, it depends how pharisaical you are about uh, this law. Is it just the eye? Just the tooth? Surely what about if a limb gets lost? Or an ear? Or a hand? Or a finger? Surely the principle is that a slave must leave your care in the same condition that you got him. That's what we saw before. Is it come in single? Leave single. Came in with two eyes? Must leave with two eyes. Otherwise, you have to let him go free. Now think about that for a second. You simply could not have the excesses that we've seen through history with slaves being beaten with impunity. What slave master in his right mind is going to do that when he'd have to receive, release his slave if he does him serious injury? When he would be liable for his murder if he dies? And in verse 32, he's treated even better in one sense. Let me give you the whole of, of that section, 28 to 32. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, The ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be liable, shall not be liable, sorry, get that right. Uh, But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, 
that's not been kept, it has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the older shall give to their master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. See there the scenario, if an ox with no track record gored your child to death, the ox would die, but you the owner would, would live. No compensation was given, it was an accident, not your fault. If there's a track record, the owner gets uh, get, uh, dies too. Or if the family demand compensation rather than his death, they get whatever they ask, because that's what's laid down there. But if an ox with no track record gored your slave to death, the ox would die, just like the other scenario, but you'd also be given 30 shekels compensation. You'd actually get more than if you weren't a slave. 30 shekels here of silver is the law's common price for a slave. And you'd get that on top of the ox dying. If the figure seems familiar, it's because the money uh, there mentioned is the same amount of money as Judas received for handing over Jesus. As though their Judas were being compensated for the loss of a slave. So what Judas got was not a king's ransom, it was a slave's ransom. But that fits, doesn't it, with what we read about Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The word there for servant is more than servant. It's doulos, which means slave. Christ took on the form of a slave for us. If you think about it, Christianity is the only religion where God makes himself a slave. Muhammad owned slaves and sold slaves. His followers enslaved whole peoples. According to some reports, Siddhartha Gautama, commonly known as the Buddha, Buddha received slaves as a gift and seemed to have allowed Buddhist monks to have them. But Jesus made himself a slave. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. For Judas, his blood was worth 30 pieces of silver. But to God, it was a ransom for many, a sacrifice to save his people. Jesus came into the world a baby, a child in Mary's womb, lived a life of obedience, that his blood may pay the price to set us free from slavery. Slavery to sin. Did you know that Christ has paid the penalty for sin and that we can know freedom and the reality of sins forgiven? Christ has paid the price of sin, not that we might be sinless, that we grow in godliness, but he has paid the penalty. He has lived that obedient life and we need to put our trust in Jesus' death on the cross. But it's a good reminder to us too though, isn't it, if Christ took on this form of a slave. Then actually, if we follow in uh, Jesus' footsteps, we're to follow that pattern. Jesus said to his disciples, Mark 10, uh, verse 44, And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. 
Just as Jesus voluntarily made himself nothing for the sake of his brothers and sisters, so we too are to make ourselves nothing for our brothers and sisters, laying down our rights, serving others, following the example of our Lord and Saviour. And if you think about it, that kind of voluntary slavery would change the world, wouldn't it? Not tearing down images or statues, but being restored in his image. Not demanding retribution or compensation, but loving and forgiving one another. Loving even our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. That kind of slavery sends a message. That sends the message of a master who is worth serving. Who is worth laying down our lives for. So let's fight slavery in the world. It's a terrible evil, isn't it? But let's also live to serve our master. Let's show by our voluntary slavery to him that we follow in his footsteps and point to him who became a slave that we might go free. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he lowered himself, he humbled himself to become a slave. Father, we do pray for those caught in slavery across the world. Father, we do pray that there would be freedom. Father, we pray that you would help those who work amongst those freeing them. But Father, help us to remember that you are a God who cares for them in the midst of that, who laid down laws in your law to protect those vulnerable people. Help us to protect the vulnerable too in our service to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.